This is Dan Fagella, and you're listening to the AI and Business Podcast. We speak this week about building AI maturity. How can we bootstrap our way into being able to nimbly deploy data science to drive business value? And our guest is someone who was on the show over three years ago, uh, three and a half-ish years ago at the time of this recording. I was called down to Atlanta to give a talk for the National Association of Corporate Directors, talking about the impact of artificial intelligence across industries, what AI adoption looks like, and ROI, some of the same topics that I often give speeches on now. And while I was down there, I was lined up with a lot of Atlanta's best and brightest when it comes to artificial intelligence. We set up some excellent interviews, and one of them was Rajkumar Bandugala. He's a PhD in machine learning, and he's now the principal data scientist at Equifax. Equifax is a 13,000-person company. Of those 13,000 folks, there's only eight people within that organization who are labeled as fellows. These are kind of folks who are leading technology in their field, and Rajkumar is one of them. Equifax, again, you know, close to $3.5 billion uh, revenue firm, so pretty substantial organization. They've gone through their own transformation with AI technology. And Rajkumar clarifies some of the difference between business intelligence, analytics, and data science, and talks about how they're different, but also how they build upon one another. They're certainly not just levels up of the same technology. There are different ways to think about the different tools, and Rajkumar lays out some important distinctions there, but also talks about connecting the dots for leaders like yourselves who are interested in leveling up your organization. So great to be able to have Raj back with us after three long years. Fun to be able to catch up again, and I certainly hope you enjoy this episode. If you're interested in more insights on building AI maturity, building proper data science teams, being able to identify and find high-value AI projects, and being able to convey the value of those projects to leadership so that you can move them forward, then be sure to check out Emerge Plus. Emerge Plus is our premium subscription for our AI best practice guides, our AI white papers, and our full artificial intelligence use case library. If you haven't learned about it, then check it out. It's emerj.com slash P1. That's P as in plus, and then the number one. emerj.com slash P1. That's where we distill a lot of the best of actionable insights from experts like Raj Kumar and offer them to our leaders in ways that are actionable in terms of frameworks and resources that you can use to put these insights to work in your business. So that's emerj.com slash p1 if you haven't checked out Emerge Plus. Without further ado, let's roll right into this episode. This is Raj Kumar Bandugla back on the show here on the AI and Business Podcast. So Raj, it's been a, a third of a decade now that I think about it. Kind of crazy that it's been that long since we've chatted last and you're still plugging away there at Equifax doing some really exciting things. And we're going to talk today about the stages of maturity in developing data science and AI within an enterprise. But I know you wanted to really begin with the core discipline that kind of undergirds AI in, unto itself, kind of what is referred to as KDD. Do you want to just start us off with that meta topic that you think is so important? Sure, Dan. So first of all, since people developed the ability to gather data, we've always found out ways to extract insights from it. So like if you think about uh, how Charles Darwin was able to devise his theory of evolution, he gathered data. Like apparently he gathered data for 20 years before he published his work. And uh, then we, 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 know we studied the examples of Mendel, Mendel, Gregor Mendel, when he studied uh, peas and like the wrinkles and things like that before he he put forth uh, his theory of uh, hereditary. Then we also had uh, I mean Bayes, Reverend Bayes, like uh, he developed it. So so the question is, the need to develop insights from data has always been there, 
and it's been more formalized uh, in the world let's say since in the corporate world since about 1970s or so 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 i refer to this book uh, thomas davenport like in his book uh, big data at work in 2014 so he clearly lays out different stages of kdd or kdd is nothing but knowledge discovery from data so in this practice we are concerned so we have raw data and we want some insights out of it so the process of extracting insights is called kdd knowledge discovery from data so the argument here is that every generation has a different kdd practice like in other words as the time evolves uh, we have different different kdd practices so in the 70s and early 80s we had decision support systems and we had executive support systems in 80s also then starting about 1990s we have something called olap so olap is the, like in both decision support systems and executive support systems they were pretty much data packaged in very nice ways so that executives can look at them and make decisions as to what investments they want to make and what they want to do but they're mostly uh, limited to small scale but whereas uh, in 90s and all people came up with the notion of multidimensional cubes where lot of aggregations were pre computed and uh, and then analytics were performed on, on those pre computed aggregations because the reason was it was not uh, the technology was not in a place where you can perform on the fly aggregations to perform higher level analytics so we had multidimensional cubes so that is like in other words slicing and dicing the data in more than one dimensions then in uh, starting from about 90s we had something called business intelligence so the business intelligence that we have analytics and data science so let me spend more time in business intelligence analytics and data science yeah great let's dive in go ahead so the business intelligence is mostly about slicing and dicing the data it's sort of rear view mirror right? so what happened so you want to pretty much look at okay let's look at the data what happened and uh, like is everything uh, is everything going according to the plan or something that needs my attention so if you think about lot of uh, operational functions in an organization they highly benefit from business intelligence so there is like first of all we cannot say that because new generation is coming up there is no place for old generation no it's not like that they serve their own function whereas uh, analytics is a slightly different uh, it's a slightly different connotation right so this is when modeling starts showing up in your whole process of understanding what is going on but whereas data science and big data is what i consider is the kdd practice of our generation so the fundamental stages this kdd practice or our generation is that we have raw data then we have data we pre process the data because we want to build models and uh, generate descriptive and predictive statistics out of this uh, data so in other words that software that will do the data mining has to understand the raw data so hence this data pre processing is a stage then we pump it to data mining software then finally we do some post processing and insights so what differentiates data science from data science and big data from previous generations is first of all the nature of the raw data itself has changed the quantities of the data has changed we're talking i mean like i just uh, just before this interview we both discussed the number of computations in one of some of from our re- recent algorithms right we had about quintillion computations quadrillion computations so that is the level of volume that i'm talking about so like in, in fact this analytics are applied to the entire us population so about 200 million people have uh, credit files in us and we were doing some analytics on the entire us population simultaneously so uh, instead of sampling so we no longer do sampling yeah yeah 
So that's the, the volume has changed. And the, also the nature of the data has also changed a lot. So now pretty much with the digital transformations, pretty much every process in the organization leaves a digital footprint. So we have data from many, many different, like we have your customer service IVRs, your customer chats, and your internal emails. And then basically, um, so we have many, many, different kinds of data so we have like text data we have uh, uh, we have numerical data like what what used to be there on structured data unstructured data then we also have image data uh, then we have noise data so we have many different kinds of data so that's that has changed and also uh, lately because like when um, lately because of the recommendations and like those kind of algorithms we also have moving data we need to extract insights from moving data again imagine your gps is a very very good example of it right so you want to be routed from one place to another place and uh, you want to get the latest data and make some decision to that data because like after one hour that is the data actually has no value yeah, data, yeah. so volume changed uh, variety changed and 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 also the velocity changed. So these three things change. So hence, this our generation fact uh, qualifies as a big data. Right, that's number one. And number two. So now that these uh, the fun the nature itself has fundamentally changed because of, because of the volume and all the complexity. Now you need a lot more complicated pre-processing steps and also much more specialized software to handle this data. Okay, as opposed to simply like running a bunch of SQL commands, now you need a lot more complicated software and more different skills. And this is where people we call big data engineers come into picture. So their job is to take the raw data and process it in a format that is uh, amenable to a data mining software. So that's a second change. Then the third change is that the data mining. So the formal definition of data mining is simply identifying interesting patterns in data. So that's what we're trying to do. So then, what is uh, so the question is like how do we do that again in the past it was purely descriptive statistics we simply want to see what happened what's average that one this one it was very very simple but now lately we wanted to use statistics and ai to to, to discover your patterns now the raw data because the scale changed the volume changed and this one changed uh, and the, the velocity also changed you need a different kind of technology to accommodate these changes in the nature of the data so hence you marry your new modeling software like uh, like algorithms from ai uh, ml or um, or statistics and they are running on a next generation of hardware where you have distributed computing and distributed storage so that is another change and post processing i don't think change that much except the volume uh, but the insights so this is another place where data science differs from other generations first of all what is data science data science is a discipline that is concerned with extracting generalizable insights from data so it is the art of interpreting reality in the light of observed data so that is what i think is uh, differentiates so at the end of the day you are generating these insights not to see if everything is going all right but what can i do what can i do in the future and what kind of generalizable insights that I, that I can draw. And it's not just generalizable, but there are actionable insights. So what can I do, go and do in my business so I can change something uh, in my business? Got it, yeah. And it's interesting to think about uh, sort of these, these parallel sort of ways of doing you know, knowledge discovery and data, because as you bring up, it's not necessarily the case that every problem ultimately needs to be served by, you know, the most cutting edge, you know, GPUs and, you know, a quintillion uh, calculations. It's, it's not necessarily the case. Some things sort of are 
perfectly fitted to what we think of as business intelligence. It's a great use case for that kind of technology in that kind of a space. And the, these layers are kind of just unlocking another category of capabilities that we can do, potentially on top of what we were doing or potentially in a totally new way. And I think a really important thing that you also bring up is that, you know, the pre-processing, the work on the data itself, and then sort of what happens, uh, you know, what the outputs of these systems are, are also different depending on which strata we're in. When you look out at the landscape of enterprises, you know, let, let's just say we pick a random industry like uh, brick and mortar retail. We line up a bunch of billion dollar plus companies. Would you rate their relative level of what we could think of as AI maturity, their, their nimbleness to be able to deploy and get value from, from AI? Would you in some way rank stack them based on how much of each of those technology bands they're using? Like, for example, folks that are barely doing any BI are sort of at one place. Folks that are doing a certain amount of BI, a certain amount of sort of AI related processes. Is that one way to think about AI maturity? Or how do we take this idea that you have and use it as a way to gauge where are we in our journey to be nimble and capable with AI? I believe now pretty much everybody has BI. I, I seriously doubt that any major major organization... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Enterprise level yeah. corporation, for sure, for sure. Yep. Mistakes right now. And then I also believe that, again, now this whole data science, this new buzzword has been a buzzword for like what, almost a decade now. So I also see that pretty much it's the whole idea of analytics has already seeped in there. I would say like maybe, I would say more than half of them probably already have some kind of analytics functions already there, right? And then who has data science is a slightly different uh, story, right? So if you think about again, data science, so the question is you need data science and the process of data scientists to understand what is going on. But once you understand what is going on, how do you deploy it is a different story. And depending on how mature your are, how nimble is, again, you brought up nimbleness. And that's very important because you understood something and can you immediately push it to production, right? And that completely depends on how good your DevOps is. That's like how good your, so for example, when I was in uh, at Sears, you came up with an algorithm, it would take less than two weeks later, we could push it, put it in production. Whereas in some other organizations that I worked, it would take two years yeah. before algorithm ever touches a production system. Within my current organization, uh, there are places where as soon as an algorithm is created, we would immediately apply this because that does not touch the customer directly. So it, it happens yeah, just roll it right out. Yep. Yep. So immediately push it in front of production. Whereas some places where it, it touches the customers, you have to be extremely careful of because course. you don't want things to change abruptly and they should be ready to buy it. They have to, re they have to ready to embrace those new models. So all of those are, so it depends on where are you trying to apply within the organization. If it is internal efficiencies, no brainer, like almost yeah. immediately get changed. Yeah. So, you know, as you mentioned, BI is relatively table stakes. Of course, some firms are farther along than others in terms of how well they're leveraging that technology and using it to, to steer better decisions. You know, same thing with artificial intelligence or with any of these other, other approaches. If you were going to go out to, you know, again, we use brick and mortar retail as an example. If you were going to sort of come up with maybe stages of how capable and agile uh, and, and nimble they are with leveraging AI capabilities in a way that's fruitful in the business. Is there a four, four blocks we could put side by side and say, well, you know, I see a lot of companies that kind of go through these sort of stage gates. I, I know the problem here is that there's a lot of ingredients, right? There's teams, there's data infrastructure, there's a lot of things. But how do you do that? Like if you had to do that stack ranking in an industry based on 
AI maturity, it wouldn't just be potentially wouldn't just be based on where they are with BI or just be with what kind of AI hardware they use or something that you'd use your own way of gauging it. How would you think through that? Actually, so um, in fact, uh, it just occurred to me that like in the earlier conversation we had about mat- uh, individual maturity, I think is also a proxy for that measurement. If you take a, so if you take an organization and if you say, take a uh, look at uh, say top 20% in some fashion, top 20 are the 20% newest talent that that company has hired. What kind of skill set that they bring, I think is a very good proxy to to where the company is, right? So suppose like when, if you're, I mean, I would say if pretty much all your latest hires uh, are just have very uh, great academic degree, I would call you at stage one, right? But then if you are able to, if like a lot of your new employees, not in addition to having an academic degree, they also have a special purpose training in the special purpose analytical package, then that is where your organization is. And if you think about, suppose like in our industry, in financial industry, if a lot of your hires have like you know, PhDs and masters in statistics, and they are almost, they're almost always trained in SAS in their schools, and uh, if that is all you need to, be, to to get hired in this company, then that is where you are in stage two. Is basically you're able to, uh, in addition to your academic academic uh, training, you're able to use some specialized software to perform your analytics. Then if your latest hires, in addition to the special packages, also know some general purpose manipulation languages, so then I am, then that's an indication that you're able to perform even more complicated analytics, uh, not necessarily in a large scale, but in a small scale, right? So that is, I would call it a stage three. And finally, if the job description of all of your latest hires says uh, must have Spark, must have SAS YR, must have MapReduce or something like that, then that means you have already transitioned to a large scale on-prem infrastructure. But now if you require all of your new hires to be uh, to have some kind of certification on clouds on like a certification on AWS or GCP or Azure, that sort of indicates to me that you have transitioned to a new like if you look at Ecofax, that is where we are in because like we are already moving to cloud and all the new people we would prefer if they actually have training on cloud. And similarly, we would the table like you know the chances of getting a job in Ecofax, especially in the analytics organization, will go up if you if you have training in Spark and SAS YR and things like that. So I would I would use this proxy. I, I don't have a direct answer for you. Yeah, no, it's good. It's good. Proxies are great. That's what we're trying to do, right? We're going to talk to a whole bunch of enterprise leaders and big companies and get a sense of what are the different proxies and then put together a really nice constellation of them so that people can say where am I? So you've obviously got one perspective, but it's a good one. And our last interview, you know, many years back was about talent. And, and we're kind of touching on that again. Hey, let's look at talent. And let's look at what are the skill sets and how far along they are in those stages you just articulated would be a good understanding as to how far along is the whole organization. It's like a kind of a, a bit of a test to kind of clarify as, as maybe we wrap up here, Raj, I, I, I think that people almost any everybody listening in is going to understand what BI is. And they're they're also going to roughly understand what, what AI is and maybe some use cases of AI. But I, I think that some of sort of like what is BI good for versus what is AI good for is still kind of blurred. People almost, they're almost sometimes seen as kind of they blur one into the other. Like, well, the cool BI is AI, right? It's, it's sort of like there's a magical line where you cross and, and now you're doing like the fun stuff. But, but in all seriousness, BI sort of serves 
a kind of a purpose and can be great for that. AI is really needed for a different category of things. Big topic, but if you're going to nutshell that and make that distinction tighter for our listeners, how would you explain it? You know, you're a person who knows the business and the tech, so I'd, I'd love your perspective here. Yeah, I think the simplest way to explain that is what is the nature of the statistics that you generate? Like statistics is a broad word in the broad context here, but all, if you're, all you're doing is descriptive statistics, you probably don't need AI. You don't need AI, right? Whereas if you're doing predictive statistics, so the question is the techniques that you use, sometimes statistics is very good, but AI will give you a lot more flexibility. Like the models with AI, they have they are capable of learning multiple patterns simultaneously. They are able to capture much more subtle patterns in the data than everybody else. So first of all, the first classification is what is the nature of prediction that you're doing? Are you doing a descriptive prediction or predictive or in the next generation of prescriptive prediction? So then the question is, within the descript, uh, predictive or prescriptive prediction, what is the nature of the techniques that you're using? And the reason why AI techniques have a lot more predictive power, a lot more predictive power. They, they, they can capture much more subtle, um, uh, subtle variations in the data. Uh, they can do a lot more things than like what, what statistics, uh, st uh, statistics itself can do. So that is how I would differentiate. Got it. So, okay, if you're doing prescriptive uh, you know, versus versus predictive, you know, that, that would be one kind of a drawn line. And when you say prescriptive, just to be clear for the folks tuned in, you know, I presume what you're talking about is, can I look back at historical data and can I find kind of what happened and why and maybe be able to visualize it and just track all of it? That's, it just, re it's retroactive. It's, it's giving me a sense of what happened. And then I can, in my own brain, extrapolate that into the future versus do our analytics actually cast a vision into the future by themselves that's where you think that's the cleanest line where BI and AI diverge. Is that your perspective? Yeah, I think so. I think so, right? So basically, first of all, can you explain? Like in other words, can you build a model to explain what is the goal? So once you have a proxy for an underlying phenomenon, you can actually manipulate it a little bit and like actually figure out. Or you cannot change the retro retroactive data, right? Like or the, or the past data, right? Whereas once you have a model, okay, what if I change this? What if I change this? What if I change this? So you understand the phenomena much, much better. So once you have this, so this is what I would call analytics, where are our predictive analytics, right? Like whereas what is prescriptive analytics in my mind is now you have given all this predictive, given all this computational power. So why apply only one treatment to your phenomena? Why can't you apply 20 different phenomena? So like in, in, in Equifax, for example, we have many, many, many different kinds of data. And we have many, many different kinds of uh, many, many different kinds of techniques. So, can we pretty much try out all combinations of data and techniques and figure out what works for you, you customer? What works specifically for you? It could be a different from for, for another customer because maybe the nature of your data, maybe the nature of your consumer base, which is different from the other person. So, what works for you? So, this is prescription. I'm prescribing something for you: a specific set of data, a specific set of techniques specifically for you. It's a prescription. Got it. Yep. Hopefully a clean distinction for the folks who are tuned in. And as, as we come to a wrap, one thing we talked about off microphone a bit was sort of the motives that move people up in terms of their maturity and agility with these technologies. There's a lot of factors that are slowly getting the ball rolling in enterprise. You know, we're farther along than when you and I last chatted, but of course there's still plenty of challenges and hurdles. You mentioned a very interesting thing about kind of FOMO being one of the things that is moving the needle. And I can agree with that. But another element was, you know, you were talking about kind of 
teams like yours, folks who are technical being able to kind of interact with leadership. And we didn't get to poke into it, but I know a lot of the listeners, they're, they're wondering, if I'm going to be a driver and a catalyst to us really modernizing, staying ahead of the curve, using the right technology for the job, I'm going to need to encourage maturity in my own organization. Any little bits of advice there from your own journey that could help other people? So there are a couple of there are a couple of places. I think like what is absolutely needed, and you recently mentioned in one of your blog or LinkedIn posts, is that we need people to be open that hey, there is a new technology. This is incredibly powerful. Can it do something for me? First of all, being open to that idea. That's number one. And number two, okay, once you're open to that idea, how do you make it actionable? Right? Either go start a small data science team and throw a very very complicated problem that like in other words throw a problem that everybody acknowledges that is a problem that needs to be solved and uh, let the team solve it and see make a make a difference and you can use that as a springboard to adopt ai broadly in the organization that's number one and number two if you're not able to hire your own team bring in a consulting company there are like a bunch of consulting companies very very happy to help you so basically if you don't want so much risk so tell them hey bring them on and let them demonstrate the power of AI and how it can change. So once you are able to, like and so Andrew Ang was saying that even in Google, it was not an easy sell for him. So apparently he started off with one team in maps and then they, they embraced AI. Then like once they saw beautiful results, now everybody wants a piece of it. Everybody wants AI. So the question is, even an organization, Google, that's much, much younger than traditional organizations, they necessarily did not embrace AI. So did not embrace AI readily. So same thing, you demonstrate, uh, again, like many people advocate, oh, try it on a tie problem. I would say exactly opposite. Go move the needle on a substantial problem that the company, so in other words, don't. I don't want to spend energy in selling the problem. I want to spend energy in selling the solution. Because if you have to, then the question is, if you demonstrate on a tie problem, you have no idea, like people cannot visualize that, oh yeah, the solution is actually applicable there. Right. So problem selection, you know, get enough approval to move the needle on something powerful and then get more buy-in. It sounds like if you have Google, well, certainly every enterprise is essentially in this phase that we're talking about, some farther along than others, but it always starts with, you know, there's different words, a, a lighthouse project. We've sometimes used the term a snowball project. The selection of those is very a very careful thing, but I think your advice is prescient, which is don't pick a toy problem, pick something meaningful. And then use that to win more buy-in and eventually build some some internal capability, even if you have to start with a consulting firm. So, Another way is like when it's, if you just bring in a person at a reasonably high level in the organization so that they actually have a voice and educate, like when basically like when if that is what you want. You want to start the journey for real and not not uh, just try it out. Just bring in somebody at a, like a very qualified person who is capable of talking both business and uh, technology and like how it can make a difference. See, it takes some time for that person to understand, like understand the upcoming unmet and an article uh, and un upcoming unmet and unarticulated needs. Okay, right? got it. Yeah, yeah. Have that list ready-made and bring in that person, say, these are your problems, go solve it. That's fantastic. Or bring in that person, let them get this list and start, uh, start working on those. Yeah, they obviously need some time to get osmosis with the company. What are the problems, the data sets, the culture, whatever. But then they've also got to osmosis to the other leadership. Here's how AI works. Here's where value is realistic. Here's where it's working for other people. And that's got to bleed into other leaders. Otherwise, 
AI is always just going to be some hypey little topic and they're going to want to focus on something else. So, all right, great point there as well. Um, we've heard a lot about change starting from the top and I think your advice there is prescient too. I know that's all we have for time, but Raj, it's a real pleasure to be able to have you back on. It's fun to be able to chat again. Thank you so much. The pleasure is mutual, Dan. Have a nice day. So that's all for this episode of the AI and Business Podcast. Big thanks to Raj Kumar for being able to join us again after three long years. And thank you to you for being able to tune in and stay all the way to the end of this episode. If you haven't already connected with us on social, please do. Very easy to find us. It's at E-M-E-R-J on Twitter or Emerge Artificial Intelligence Research on LinkedIn and on Facebook. Not only do we post all of our latest interviews, we post all of our latest articles, use cases, as well as some of our best infographics as well. So if you want to stay up to speed and ahead of the curve when it comes to the ROI and adoption of artificial intelligence, then follow us on social. And otherwise, stay tuned right here on the AI and Business Podcast. I'll catch you in the next episode.